0: Here here and here here and Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now Podcast. My name is Dave Mons, I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Last week, we took a look at the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Personality Test, and ran it through the mill of scientific validity and reliability. According to a few of these measures, we determined that it wasn't the best measure of personality, despite being widely used in organisational settings, and for personal understanding and development. But it also raised a few questions regarding personality in general, like, is personality really a thing? Or is it just something we use to describe slight dispositions and mood or preference, which are primarily dictated to us by our culture and society? These are interesting questions, and it's worth exploring them in more detail, so consider this an episode in which the cart pushes the horse. It'd be useful to first define what we mean by personality. Here's one definition. It's an individual's characteristic pattern of thought, emotion, and behavior, together with the psychological mechanisms, hidden or not, behind those patterns. So we could think of personality as something that informs our emotions, our cognitions, and the expression of them. There's a particularly important distinction to make here, and that is to isolate personality from the related terms of temperament and character. Temperament is often confused with personality, but we could think of it as something that we're born with. As we'll discuss, a significant component of personality is genetic and remains relatively unchanged throughout our lives, and so we call that temperament. But as we grow and learn and experience the world through myriad social, cultural and environmental forces, our temperament is shaped and moulded and added to. These influences help to determine our character. The result of temperament and character is personality. So personality is really a combination of both biology and the environment. Now Meyer and Briggs and their predecessors certainly did believe in personality as a construct and they set about teasing out its unique characteristics. Is it infinitely variable, or are there similarities in the ways that people seem to think, act and behave? Myers-Briggs offered one starting point for answering this question through their four factors. For instance, introversion and extroversion is a pretty clear construct that varies between people, but how about intuition versus sensing? Now the concepts become vaguer and more tenuous, but they still represent certain ways that we can describe the way people are in the world. If simply describing all the ways that we can be different leads us to personality, then how many ways are there, and does it even make sense to do it that way? Let's say we make a list of every possible personality trait that we can think of. Happy-go-lucky, punctual, grumpy, arrogant, friendly, engaging, you name it, make a long list of adjectives that we might use to describe ourselves or others. Would this tell us many things, or a lot of the same things over and over again? Is a happy-go-lucky person also often a caring person or an outgoing person? Is a person with a sallow disposition often extremely punctual and attentive to details? Are we really just getting caught up in language and not even thinking about personality at all? One of the founders of the field of personality psychology took this question and ran with it. His name was Gordon Allport, and ironically, he felt people were so diverse and unique that they could not be categorized according to narrow dimensions, but rather described only according to specific traits. So he sat down with a dictionary, and he made a list of every trait descriptor he could find. And when he was done, he had a list of 4,500 of them. Interestingly, Allport, like a lot of philosophers and psychologists who came before him, knew there was value in language, how he described things, tends to create the very concepts which the words represent. Think of words in other languages, which you've heard of, which don't translate well to English. Zeitgeist is one from German, and it's something of a cliché today. It means the feeling or spirit of a time. Or wabasabi from Japanese, which represents something like finding beauty in imperfections. These words represent something like a sunset, where a picture paints a thousand words. They are really a thousand words embedded within a few words which represent a feeling, an emotion, a moment. So language is powerful and in many ways it's central to our humanity and we'll explore that whole theme in more detail a bit later. But Allport knew this and so thought simply that a general personality trait could be weighted according to how many different words there were to describe it. This approach is known as the lexical hypothesis, and it was actually first introduced by Sir Francis Galton, who you might remember from back in episode 16 on Nature Nurture. Then entered another key contributor to the field of personality psychology. His name was Raymond Cattle. Cattle really changed the game for psychometric testing. His key contribution was to apply a statistical method known as factor analysis to understanding personality traits. I introduced this briefly in the last episode. It's a complex concept but essentially factor analysis is a tool used for summarizing relationships between a set of variables. Things like if a value is high for variable x then also tends to be high for variable y so we could say they are related and are actually measuring the same thing. If we do this with a large number of variables then we begin to see those that are closely related and we can come up with a higher order factor which uh, those variables all fall under which are explained by that factor. This is precisely what Cattle did for personality testing. He used factor analysis to make this into something empirical and verifiable with the scientific method. Cattle took Orport's list of 4,500 different words for personality traits, and he first reduced them down to 171 distinct traits to which he then applied factor analysis to, to find the relationships between them. These 171 words then became 16 dimensions of personality, which coincidentally was the same as Meyer and Briggs found, uh, although the dimensions are different. Cattle considered each of these dimensions as a bipolar scale of opposites. For example, one dimension had reserved at one end and outgoing at the other, and another had uh, humble on one end of the scale versus assertive at the other. Around the same time, another psychologist by the name of Hans Eisnick was also studying personality and he proposed a theory based on just two high-order personality traits, introversion, extroversion, and neuroticism, stability. Later on, he added a third, which he called psychoticism. He called these super traits, and they represented distinct substrates similar to the different variables that fall under the factors found by cattle. Each sub trait is further made up of what he called habitual response patterns, and these are informed by actions. So personality, according to Eisnick's theory, is something that emerges from how we act and make decisions from moment to moment throughout our lives. These are essentially habitual, where we repeat behaviors and response and patterns. And these can be considered in terms of where they fall on a scale of, say, introversion, extroversion, neuroticism, stability, and psychoticism. So you can visualize this as like an umbrella with the super traits at the top underneath the subtraits clustered uh, in three groups, followed by habitual response patterns, and then eventually the specific actions are at the bottom. Both Kettle and Eisnick were beginning to form a formal structure of personality, and their models and theories uh, began to intrigue even more researchers to look at this more closely. So if few took this further and eventually reduced Cattle's 16 dimensions and increase Eysenck's three to a number of five, so five factors of personality. One of the first papers to really articulate a five-factor model was presented by two United States Air Force psychologists in 1961. Their names were Ernest Toops and Raymond Crystal. They based their analysis on groups of Air Force personnel. Uh, one group was 790 males in officer candidate school. There was another of 500 senior officers, and they also used a pre-existing database from some of Cattle's earlier work. So interestingly, the data they collected was personality assessments conducted by individuals on each other. They weren't self-reported questionnaires, but rather each test taker uh, rated another person. So the length of time that they'd known the person for was anywhere from three days to more than a year. But the idea was that the results would all be collated to give an idea of just how varied individual personality traits were. It wasn't so important how they applied to the individuals themselves. It was more about uh, building a picture of the constructs of personality. So Toops and Crystal reported five strong factors emerged from their factor analysis. These were surgency, which was a new word for me. I did a brief Google of the etymology of the word and found that it's a derivative of surgent, which means rising in waves. It's been used in the field of psychology since around the 30s, no doubt introduced by the Viennese crowd, although i are trying to find out the detail more specifically on that and let you know. They also found agreeableness, dependability, which they said was characterised by traits like orderliness, responsibility, conscientiousness, perseverance and conventionality. And the fourth factor was emotional stability. The fifth was culture, which they defined as an inquiring intellect. So this study was pivotal in personality theory, but it went relatively unnoticed for another three decades. It was only in the 1980s that researchers began to see the significance of a five-factor model. And finally, around 1990, a psychologist at the University of Hawaii named John Digman published a paper proposing a grand unified theory of personality in which he named the five-factor model. However, it was about 10 years earlier that another researcher by the name of Lewis Goldberg had first coined the term the Big Five to describe the distinct personality traits that continued to emerge from repeated studies of personality. So this is not to say that the five-factor model hasn't been subject to differing interpretations, and this is one of the reasons the model has become so widely accepted today. Something like five different sets of researchers came to the same conclusions quite independently of each other. The precise terminology and naming conventions differed slightly, but the big five was essentially the same. The various terms were eventually harmonized into the five factors we know today, which are very similar to those originally proposed by Tupes and Crystal. They're easily recalled using the acronym OCEAN, which stands for Openness, Conscientiousness, Extroversion, Agreeableness, and Neuroticism. We'll explore each of them now, but I don't want to get too bogged down into just reciting a list. You can look into the specifics by following the links in the show notes, but here's a brief overview. Openness refers to openness to experience. In many ways, this is the same as the measure of culture. Toops and Crystal identified. It describes people who are intellectually curious, that interested in art, philosophy, and literature. People high in openness are sensitive to beauty and aesthetics, and also open to emotion. You might think of these people as self-actualizing. They're creative and maybe risk takers. So it's no surprise that people high in openness are often entrepreneurs. Conversely, people low in openness are not comfortable in constrained environments or underneath power hierarchies. Conscientiousness follows, and is often described as the dimension of dutifulness. It relates to self-discipline and the tendency people have to maintain self-control. Those high in conscientiousness like to plan things in advance, while those low in conscientiousness prefer to act spontaneously. It also describes how reliable people are and how closely they attend to detail. Next comes extroversion, which we all know well by now, especially from the last episode. Now, we're all familiar with the trait of extroversion and its opposite, introversion, but one of the defining features of the Big Five model is that it is based on a spectrum rather than a bimodal scale as in the Meyer Briggs. So while there's always those who tend toward one end or the other of this spectrum, most of us fall somewhere closer to the middle, and many of the well-known personality tests which are based on the five-factor model provide a metric which reflect that nuanced nature of personality. Next comes agreeableness. Agreeableness is about the desire for social harmony, how well we value fitting in and not rocking the boat. People high in this trait could be described as nice, kind, nurturing and conciliatory. The opposite is also true. People low in agreeableness tend to be more sceptical, dominant and competitive. And finally there's neuroticism. This is the tendency to be more emotionally reactive and vulnerable to stress. People high in neuroticism are less resilient, they tend to take a negative view of situations and are higher in anxiety, anger and depression. People who are generally calm and emotionally stable tend to score lower on this scale. So there you have it, that's the five factor model. An important point to note here is that it is a model, it's not a theory, and that's probably one of the main criticisms of it. As a model, the big five offers no explanation for why people tend to be one way or another, nor is it predictive of behaviour. All it has really achieved is to categorize the majority of adjectives used to describe human behavior into these five bipolar scales, which we can then use to determine how much of one or another makes us up. It's widely recognized as the model is. It is just a model. It's a starting point for further research and adaptation to more utilitarian settings. There's generally three lines of evidence which support the validity of the five-factor model. The first is factor analysis, which I've already described. The second is the result of heritability studies, many involving twin studies, which show that around half of the variability in trait scores across all five factors can be explained by genetics. This doesn't mean that there's a gene for agreeableness or neuroticism. Traits are polygenic. There are many genes which contribute to certain attributes, including personality. The most heritable traits are openness at 57%, and extraversion at 54% while agreeableness is less heritable at 42%. This suggests that environment and epigenetics counts considerably toward how kind, caring, and empathetic people are. If you're a parent, it might pay to keep that in mind. The third line of evidence supporting the ubiquity of the five-factor model is its stability over the lifespan. This has been verified using both cross-sectional and longitudinal studies. Cross-sectional studies... Take a snapshot of people of different ages and compare them, while longitudinal studies follow the same person over the course of their lives. It's generally been found that individuals tend to decline in neuroticism and extroversion and increase in agreeableness and conscientiousness over time. This kind of makes sense. Some people tend to mellow in old age and become more accepting of their lot. They resist less and pay more attention. This also reflects the happiness curve that I spoke about way back in episode 3. Despite only being a model, there have been several theories built around the Big Five. One of these was proposed by Robert McRae and Paul Costa, and it considered the Big Five as the basic tendencies for all human personality. They reasoned that we're all biological beings of the same species, we're from the same genotype. Therefore, it makes sense that we're all the same in terms of our initial ingredients. So the Five Factor Model is not something to be thought of as constraining our individuality. Rather, it's it's like how cats have different coats. Some are ginger, some are tabby, some are combinations of these different coats, but there's no purple or green cats. The same can be said of our personality types. We can vary according to five dimensions or factors, but essentially all five are thrown into a cocktail shaker, rattled around, and then out will pop you. Of course, it'd be more accurate to say that you'd start by throwing in certain quantities of each trait according to your genetics, but you get the idea. So once the basic tendencies are established, what we defined as temperament at the beginning of the episode, characteristic adaptations follow based on environmental influences and these affect your neuroplasticity, your ability to change and adapt to subtle or not-so-subtle interventions. These shape your character and then combine to inform your view of yourself and the narrative of your life as you live it, and most importantly, how you live it. The relationship between your basic tendencies, characteristic adaptations, and who you are in the world is dynamic and subject to influence, but at its foundation are the Big Five. All of this rests upon the assumption that the Big Five are relatively stable over the lifespan, and for the most part, they seem to be. The five-factor model, and indeed the theory presented by McCrae and Costa, rests on the notion that personality is nomothetic—that that is, it is governed by the same principles, and as such we can be compared with each other. There's an opposite argument which says that no, we are all uniquely individual and cannot be compared as we're just too different. This would be the ideographic position. Intuitively, it feels correct to think of human beings as nomothetic. and in fact many non-human primates show similar characteristics. While the five-factor model may have had its origins in a lexical paradigm, it seems clear today that personality is something made up of a variation Among a handful of core factors, dimensions, whatever you want to call them, we can vary as much as possible on those continuums, but essentially there are only so many ways to skin this cat. But that raises an interesting point. If the five-factor model is really a universal of human nature, then it should emerge regardless of language and culture. But what about the fact that different cultures express themselves in different ways and use words which can't be translated? This suggests that those cultures have fundamentally different ways of seeing the world, as if the word doesn't exist in English, then it means we have either never thought about the concept, or if we have, we don't think about it in the same way. Fortunately for us, there have been a number of cross-cultural studies carried out to test the five-factor model, and the results are somewhat intriguing. To do this, a baseline test instrument needs to be established, and this came in the form of the NEO Personality Inventory, which is a test consisting of around 240 questions, although there's also shorter versions. It examines individuals against the big five personality traits, and a number of sub-facets for each trait. This test has been translated into 40 languages, and administered in at least 30 different cultures. The premise is straightforward if the five factors are western english-based concepts then they would fail to emerge in other cultures this was not the case though in each of the 30 or more cultures the five factors were distinct and this is true of both self-reported questionnaires and observer ratings there are many other tests based on the five-factor model and most have reported similar findings but that is not the end of the story in some cultures more or less factors have been found In a study carried out in 1996 at the University of Hong Kong, researchers found evidence of the five-factor model, but also four additional factors, one of which was harmony, which was quite independent of a factor for agreeableness. In another study of a Filipino population sample, uh, additional factors of social curiosity and risk-taking were found. Yet another study found seven traits in Spanish speakers, and this was also found among a Hebrew-speaking population. There have also been studies conducted among illiterate indigenous people with limited evidence of the Big Five, but more research needs to be carried out in this area. The problem is assessing such specific things as personality require methods sensitive to culture. These are described as ethnographic methods, and they must be constructed in such a way that their findings become equivalent to other measures of traits or characteristics. Generally speaking, there is cross-cultural support for the five-factor model of personality. But it probably doesn't tell the whole story. There are unique cultural influences which tend to shape personality. It's only about 50% genetically determined after all. And language is surely implicated in developing character, as it is intrinsic to how we describe the worlds that we inhabit. The tests that are written in different languages are constructed with all the nuance that make those cultures unique, so it is no surprise that they will reveal something of that in their results. But the work on personality psychology doesn't end with the five-factor model. Indeed, Kibbe and Lee and Michael Ashton, two research psychologists, developed a six-factor model of personality they call the Hexaco model, which extends upon the five-factor model to include the dimension of honesty, humility. This describes tendency toward altruistic behavior, sincerity, and loyalty. And they also drop neuroticism in favor of emotionality. Generally speaking, this model is more positively constructed than the five-factor model and offers, say, a more fine-grained explication of personality through 25 additional facets of each factor trait. So this leaves us with the most important question. What does it all mean? What do we do with this information? Have we achieved anything other than creating a taxonomy which pigeonholes us into some number of dimensions which we can then use to determine a metric? Just like the Myers-Briggs, personality tests built around the five-factor model have been used to predict everything from educational attainment to income, to romantic relationships and political position. But I'm not going to explore any of that here. If personality really is a relatively fixed construct, which we can do little about, then what is the value in comparing yourself to others in terms of outcome? What is more important is honest self-assessment and reflection. Being able to identify your own strengths and weaknesses, and consciously working to improve and become the best version of yourself. Sure, for people high in conscientiousness, this may come easily. But the actions you take, and the choices you make, are within your power to control. A personality test may offer you something tangible to use as a starting point for understanding yourself better. But it is also your personality which will inform how you take that information. Perhaps you're high in neuroticism, so you take that as a negative, and don't even bother to improve your life, because what's the point? You are who you are. But you're wrong. So many things that we think of as given are not at all because we have the ability to make choices and alter outcomes for ourselves. We can do this by starting small, interrupting those negative thought patterns and telling ourselves a new story. We know who we are. We acknowledge that some things will be more challenging for us than others, but the difference in outcomes is determined by the level of effort. Many years ago, I arrived in a new country to live. I had a suitcase, a few dollars and little else. I didn't speak the language, I didn't know anything about the culture or customs. I was there on an adventure full of hope and optimism for the future. Now, I'm not overly introverted or extroverted, I'm somewhere near the middle, but probably tend toward the introverted side. I don't find it easy to throw myself into social situations, and in this place where I was an outsider, who couldn't even communicate, I began to retreat into myself. This went on for several months, and I became more and more miserable. I knew what was happening, but I didn't know how to fix it. Then I had a break from that environment, and during that period of space, I made a new plan for myself. I'd throw myself into everything that came my way. I wouldn't turn down an offer to meet people, to go out and socialise. I would change my living situation to be more available for social opportunities. I'd force myself to become an extrovert. It was the only way I was going to change the tide of the situation I'd found myself in. It wasn't easy. Nothing important ever is. But it worked. It worked. I didn't set the world on fire, but I didn't have to. I just learned that I was a better version of myself if I took some risks and put in the effort. Life got better, a lot better. The change to my personality wasn't permanent. It wasn't really even temporary. It was just a choice to live in a way that made me uncomfortable, but that confronted the aspects of my personality that were holding me back. So that's a tool that I keep handy when I'm in those situations, if they ever arise again. Yes, we are who we are but our mind gives us the power to change our story. Whether there are two factors of personality, five, six, seven, or even 16, you are unique and capable of amazing things in your own way, and surely that transcends temperament, character, and personality. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Here and Now podcast, or Twitter at Here and Now podcast, if you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email Now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.